Welcome to Against the Law, the myth-busting podcast that aims to sort out what's fact and what's fiction in the ancient world. If you hear our gavel sound, that's the noise of justice hammering down on historical fake news. This week, we're going back to school to learn about how the ancients taught their kids, and how different is it really to how things are done now? I'm Flo, and it's a great podcast for me today because I know pretty much nothing about the ancient world. My teachers today are Mr Barney, who will be telling us about the ancient Near East, Mrs Zenya, whose lessons will focus on the ancient Romans, and Miss Allison is currently teaching Class 3B, so we've got our favourite substitute teacher, Miss Meg, telling us all about the ancient Greeks. So, I've got my notebook and pencil case, I've got my arms crossed and my fingers on lips, so come on guys, teach me a lesson. Well, I guess lots of parents at the moment are doing homeschooling. We're hoping that the that schools are going to go back soon. But um, yeah, I mean, was there homeschooling in the ancient world, Meg or Bunny? So in ancient Greece, there was a kind of combination of formal school and the kind of homeschooling that so many parents have been having to do at the moment. Um, but it was split according to sort of gender lines. So in ancient Athens, for example, boys had quite a formal education at school. Um, but girls would probably be taught at home like by their mothers um, in a much less formal way. But there is evidence to suggest that some girls did like learn to read and write, for example. So obviously this is when we're talking about um, girls and education is mainly kind of rich, elite Athenian girls. Um, but so there's some interesting kind of images on pots from Athens of women reading poetry from a kind of book role. So we can kind of extrapolate from that that some girls did know how to read and write, but it definitely wouldn't be as widespread as for boys. I assume that these are pots of a slightly more permanent nature than the ones that we've talked about yeeting against the wall so often. <laughs> I really like um, Samian ware pots, that really red, red stuff. Um, that always seems to tell a story in like a freeze around the edge. I quite like that you can be like, instead of studying a book to learn about ancient history, I'm just going to really, really stare at this bowl. <laughs> There's some really cool pots that have little kind of almost inset stories on. So you've got your main thing going on on the big side of the pot. And then on the handles, there'll be a sort of almost like a subplot to the pot story. So they are in a way that they're their own form of telling stories. A subplot. Like a subplot. <laughs> Barney. Hey, that's... <laughs> subplot. <laughs> A lot of them are of mythological scenes. There's an amazing one, which is, um, I think it's Ajax carrying the body of Odyssea, of um, Achilles, sorry, slumped over Ajax's shoulders. And it's, it's a beautiful point, it's so detailed. But then the flip side of that is some of them are these much more domestic scenes, which is where we get this evidence about, you know, girls reading from scrolls. And it's this kind of insight into what life would actually have been like for normal women in ancient Athens, which we just don't get that much in literature. So if you've got, mythology on your pots did you also have mythology in your school curriculum the you know homer's iliad which i'm sure you guys have mentioned before was a big part of um education and a lot of what children in ancient athens especially would have learned would be about mythology how about in other uh, ancient cultures was uh, mythology taught in schools there yeah so in roman schools they would also have um it was ancient Rome's answer to Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, and that's Virgil's Aeneid. So uh, this was written in sort of the first century BC. And it it traces a pattern from the end of uh, the story of Troy, pretty much. So after Troy falls, Aeneas, uh, who's a Trojan uh, prince, 
he sort of picks up the trail. He he's a refugee. He uh, sails across the ancient world. He has all sorts of adventures, a bit like Odysseus. But the end of his journey, his fate, is to found um, a society that later becomes Rome. So it is a bit like Roman's origin story, um, is Aeneas. And they used to learn about that in, in Roman school. Um, so the people who went to school in ancient Rome, those would uh, also be, be boys, and usually boys from wealthy families, sort of middle class and up, really. Um, they would be the ones in school. Sometimes they would have a home tutor, uh, and girls would also be, be taught at home. Um, but yeah, they would, they would read... Uh, Virgil's Aeneid and often they would learn to recite it as well that was that was tended to be how things were taught. Um, So in Roman schools usually it's for boys who are from sort of middle or upper classes is that quite is that quite a common theme across the ancient world is school reserved only for the higher classes who could afford to send their kids to school or rather their boys to school? Uh, yeah, I can definitely say that for the ancient Near East, uh, for Mesopotamia, that, yeah, it was a pretty elite activity. Um, literacy was generally quite low and the the technology of writing that they had in Mesopotamia required uh, many, many years of training. Most of the time in Mesopotamia, it was it was boys as well. There's uh, there's no good evidence, really, of, of, you know, classes full of girls learning how to write cuneiform, their uh, ancient writing system. There do seem to exist a few scribes uh, who were women who signed their name as female scribe, basically, instead of just scribe. Barney, you mentioned uh, writing in cuneiform. And one of the things that I'm really enamoured by in the ancient world is um, writing in Pompeii. So I'm really interested in literacy rates because I know that the writing that's in Pompeii on the walls isn't particularly, it's quite crude. Let's be honest. It talks about brothels, about watering down beer, where people have had a wee in the street. And that doesn't necessarily sound to me like a sort of elite class writing on the wall. Unless I'm wrong, Xenia. No, you are right. So this is where an important difference comes in. It's the difference between formal education in school and then an education that you have, I don't know, you could call it like the school of life. You're right, Flo, the archaeological evidence points to a, a fairly general like rate of basic literacy across um, across the Roman Empire. There's a story, we, we mentioned it once before on, on the on the podcast, um, the story of Trimalchio, which is told by uh, an author called Petronius in his book called The Satyricon. And um, he is a former slave who becomes a freedman and then creates this very, very lucrative business in trade um and uh what he hosts this dinner party that's the setting for for the book and at this dinner party one of his guests who's sort of in a similar position says um i always really want to do this in a in an accent but that's also uh stereotyping do it do it i never learned my geometry or my literary criticism none of your fancy literature but i know how to write my capital letters and i can do my percentages and i can divide up money um, that was like it was like having my dad in the room, Senya. <laughs> well, I just think that's great though, because it's like, yeah, these are the skills that 
um, Trimarchio and people of his sort of level needed for life. And they they were really, that was what they needed. And they were really good at it. You know, they made a lot of money out of that. We also know that Trimarchio's wife, Fortunata, she was, um, she was a pole dancer, basically. And then she, but she was so successful. She was like the Cardi B of the ancient world. And she, uh, that she actually loaned Trimalchio this, this massive loan to help him get out of a sticky situation with his business. And she managed all of his finances. So not only do we learn that Trimalchio can do his percentages and his capital letters, but clearly his wife Fortunata could as well. I think that's really true nowadays as well, because I don't think that schooling is a one size fits all thing anywhere in the world at any time in the world. Because if you're on a building site, you know how to get things level and even and measure them up and divide, you know, measurements by however much you need. But you might not necessarily have excelled at arithmetic at school. Definitely. And also, Xenia, I'm not sure if you know anything about this, but I've heard that with um, the Satyricon, when it was first sort of discovered, the manuscript, people actually didn't believe it was real because the quality of Latin was seen as so bad. But actually, that view, I think, has been slightly kind of changed in recent years to allow for the fact that not everyone spoke the same type of Latin and not everyone learned in the same way. But ultimately, it represents a kind of broader segment of society. Absolutely. And we have to remember that in in the Roman Empire, most people didn't actually speak Latin. That was the language of the elite. That was the formal language, a bit like sort of French was in, in medieval England. But most people actually spoke Greek and not classical Greek, but a sort of a dialect of Greek called Koine. Um, it's actually what the New Testament is written in. It's this sort of, um, yeah, like a slightly easier version of Greek that everyone would have uh, would have known. That's so interesting. There's actually there's an amazing um, inscription, a sort of stone inscription from Roman occupied Sardinia in about 180 BC, which is by um, a man called Cleon. And he identifies himself as an enslaved worker in the Sardinian salt mines. Um, And he makes this inscription in which he thanks a god for healing him and he dedicates an altar. But the amazing thing is that he does this inscription in three different languages. So in Latin and Greek and also Punic. Um, and it's amazing because, like you say, I think it's assumed that he is Greek, his name is Greek, and his Greek is sort of the best of the three inscriptions. The Latin has quite a lot of mistakes and stuff. Um, but it's really rare to find a trilingual inscription. It shows a remarkable kind of level of education in old Cleon, the salt mine worker. And I think it's, almost, it's quite moving as well. There's a real determination to sort of write down his name and say what he wanted to say in as many languages as possible so it could reach a wider audience, which is amazing, I think. So we've talked a bit about writing. What other subjects could I find in ancient schools? Am I right in thinking numbers have their origin in the ancient Middle East? Yes, we we do use um, ancient uh, Arabic numerals as our own, but those those weren't the same as the ones they had in Mesopotamia. In fact, uh, in Mesopotamia, they used base 60 instead of base 10. Uh, so we count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and then start again. They had systems where you went all the way up to 60 before starting again. Is that any relation to minutes and hours and seconds? Yeah, that is actually where we get our arrangement of um, of time from and also like degrees in a circle and um, those basic sort of geometrical ideas that are divided into 60 come from ancient Babylonia. Oh, that's, that's really neat. And that's like when you count to 100 to, you know, playing hide and seek. They must have done that so differently. <laughs> Shorter time. They got, they got way less time to hide. <laughs> Talking about keeping up with uh, new ways of counting and new ways of learning, I was just thinking, if you're 
uh, certainly in uh, ancient Roman lessons, geography must have been hard because things were changing all the time, weren't they, with sort of the empire. Was geography ever taught? And was it like, right, last week, ignore what I said. Now we're adding Britain. Was it like that? Or was it? I love that idea. Um, I, I don't, I haven't come across any evidence that geography was actually taught in schools. But there are some really famous geographers from um, the the Roman Empire. Strabo was one. And in fact, a lot of like our understanding of, of the wider ancient world comes from Strabo's geography. So he actually traveled all. It was it's not so much like an academic geographical account, but it's it's more like a travelogue. He goes around all the ancient world and he writes down what he sees and he writes down things like local mythologies. That is so interesting. There's also, I think there's kind of the concept of like a tour guide in some ancient literature in terms of, because it's interesting that in Rome, like we are, they were very kind of obsessed with ancient Greece. Um, and Xenia, I don't know if you know this text, but in Lucan's um, Bellum Cavile, which is a, a sort of epic about the Roman civil war, there's this story of Caesar um, going back to visit the ruins of Troy and he doesn't know anything about it. And the tour guide sort of tells him off, for you know, accidentally um, stepping on a holy site. And it's so interesting. It's, it kind of suggests that maybe Caesar actually didn't have the education that he should have had about um, ancient, ancient Troy and ancient Greece. Yeah, I guess it tells us about like... Um... Yeah, like Flo was saying, there's sort of different levels of education that you might have depending on what mattered for your social status. Because, mm. yeah, Caesar was from quite an old um, senatorial family. So he would probably have learnt more rhetoric than than like life skills. I don't know how uh, all of our listeners think about sort of uh, emperors and kings and stuff in the ancient world, but at least one um, neo-Assyrian king, probably one of the most famous, Ashurbanipal, um, he explicitly states in one of his um, palace reliefs that he was literate. Um, so it might have not have been the rule at all for kings, because as, as Zenia was saying about the sort of the necessity of certain levels of education, kings probably didn't really know need to know how to be able to read or write because they were surrounded by their elite court who could do it for them. There's some interesting stuff about um, the kind of ancient heroes of, of Greek myth. And it's possibly a bit against the law to say um, they, they didn't just have a kind of military education. They weren't just uh fighters and warriors so hercules or heracles um as he's also known is famous for being really strong saving people um going from zero to hero as in the song um but there are some accounts that he did have a quite like quite a well-rounded education um but he doesn't seem to be very good at school so he had a music teacher called linus um, and linus was trying to teach hercules how to play the lyre that is kind of really old stringed instrument um, but it wasn't coming naturally to Hercules. And Linus kind of tells him off and tries to tell him to try putting his fingers in a different position. Um, and Hercules then got so angry that he just murdered Linus with his own liar, which is not a good way to go, I think. And then when he was tried for murder, <laughs> Hercules said um, he quoted another sort of figure from ancient myth, um, Radamanthus, who says, whoever defends himself against a wrongful aggressor shall go free. And then Hercules was acquitted. So the court were clearly like, yes, an annoying music teacher is a wrongful aggressor. So I don't know whether that <laughs> makes sense in modern terms. I don't remember that from the film. Also, I I would really like to say on, you know, in Hercules' defence, I had a violin teacher who was a bit like that. Mm, yeah, no, it is, it is quite a relatable position. But I don't know if many of us would have taken it that far. Yeah, we're not advocating murder here, kids. 
Yeah. Also, I was only seven, so what harm could I have really done? <laughs> Speaking of being seven and violence, I've got this picture in my head of young schoolboys in Sparta having to learn how to fight and injure each other. Is that true? That is definitely to some extent true. I think the kind of the modern picture of Sparta as this kind of incredibly military violent society is is basically true. <laughs> they all Spartan boys or most Spartan boys would have joined a kind of communal um, school. They would have lived and ate with their kind of schoolmates um, and basically learned to fight. Um, they did, there's a weird thing called the Cryptaea, which is very kind of mysterious. I'm not quite sure what happened, but Plato accounts uh, has this account of young men in Sparta being sent out into the wilderness with no shoes and no food and they have to survive. Um, and they also kind of randomly kill people. And yeah, it's it's this sort of mysterious endurance training, which interestingly, the Vulcans have to do a very similar thing in Star Trek. So I've always wondered if that's a kind of reference to the Spartan society. But yeah, it was very um, violent and it did include a lot of uh, kind of military training for Spartan education, not much of anything else. Although they did do some sort of singing and dancing in, a, in a, that ritual sense. Um, but for example, learning to read and write would have been much less important in Sparta than as in Athens. So it's not quite the Hunger Games level that I was I was imagining in my head then. Well, the Cryptaea actually could, maybe that is essentially the Hunger Games. We know very little about it, and maybe that's because it's top secret Hunger Games material, the fourth Hunger Games book. So we've had geography with that uh, that Spartan education. Sounds like we've got a bit of PE. Uh, so what else, what else do we have and do we not have in schools? Do we have textbooks? There were some really famous libraries in the ancient world. Um, some of them in in Athens, but also in Alexandria in Egypt, in Rhodes, which is a Greek island, and in Pergamum, which was uh, it's in Western Turkey now. I think early on in the podcast we talked about how you can't really destroy uh, clay tablets without smashing them up. So if you have a fire in your library, which I know was the fate of some of the uh, libraries in the um, Greco-Roman world, uh, it would only make the tablets stronger. So um, schools are actually really handy for um, the transmission of ancient texts to the modern day um, because they were copying them out the whole time. They, they learned by rote quite a lot. Um, and so because these students were copying out bits of epics and religious hymns um, and uh, like philosophical debates and stuff like that these have all survived in in dozens of copies hundreds of copies because the school kids were all sitting there dutifully writing them out did they have when they were writing on tablets as i understand it they use a kind of is it like a stylus thing to make those sort of um, wedge shapes do we know if there's is there sort of variation in handwriting and stuff were they taught how to write neatly or was it a bit more of a free-for-all um you definitely can see um variation in different people's uh, orthography, yeah, the way in which they write. Um, often you'll find tablets that had a slightly more temporary use, um, like a note or a letter. They can be scrawled quite fast, almost like you'd call like cuneiform cursive or something like that. Um, and then they had uh, more kind of neat styles for inscriptions, for example. Um, th there's one style of the script called lapidary, i.e. something that's um, inscribed in stone, which is very regular and very readable. And that was actually part of the curriculum. They were tested in all of these different um, styles of handwriting for different um, different uses in scribal culture. 
because was anyone else in primary school really excited about when you get to upgrade from a pencil to a handwriting pen I wonder if there was a kind of similar if you're a, a scribe in cuneiform if it's like a big day when you get your sort of big boy style <laughs> <laughs> that's nice there's definitely like different ways that they learned as well um sometimes your teacher would copy out a really long bit of text and then you would uh, copy it out right next to it um, and my favourite style are these tablets called lentils, which are round and the teacher would write on one side and you'd flip it over and write on the back. So maybe when you graduate from lentils to the, the longer tablets uh, where you're copying on the left and right, maybe that's your, your uh, was it called a pen certificate? Yeah. <laughs> you always used to get those red pens with, with yeah. blue ink, you know, the ones I mean? Yeah, the, is it Beryl? Beryl yeah, barrel pens. Oh my god, it was such a badge of honour to have to have one of those. <laughs> it was <laughs> so exciting. Um, but yeah, interestingly, talking about these uh, the school tablets being a really good way that we know about certain ancient texts and basically their curriculum. Um, one other thing to point out is that these are found in what appear to be private homes. Uh, so there's not really dedicated schools in the way that we think of as, you know, a separate building. Often it just took place in, in a domestic setting. Um, and there's one in a ancient Babylonian city called Nippur, um, they called House F, where they found 1,425 fragments of uh, school texts uh, from around 1800 BC. Um, so this is a proper, you know, although it was a domestic setting, they really were churning out quite a lot of uh, written material there. That sounds like a frantic night of marking someone's homework, doesn't it? And presumably it was abandoned there if they were all found together. So someone obviously quit. <laughs> Crunch, I can't move in my own home. There's tablets <laughs> all over the floor. Beyond learning in school, and we're thinking about children here, but what happens when you age out of the school system? When you're a young man in the ancient, in the ancient world, is there a university to go to? Is there a college to go to? What sort of further education could there be had in the ancient world? Well, our word for um, academia comes from the name of Plato's Academy or Ac Academia in Greek, which actually has nothing to do with anything. The word doesn't have anything to do with education or schooling. It was literally just the name of the area. It was called um, the Academia and he founded his school there. So that's where we get that word. And people often call Plato's Academy the earliest university. And it sort of was. Um, for one thing, you didn't have to pay fees, which was exciting. And it, but it was for young kind of upper class men um, to talk about philosophies, talk about modern um, issues as in modern of the time and philosophy and uh, ethics and that kind of thing um, but there is actually some evidence that two women attended Plato's academy which is exciting but they did both have to dress up as men so it wasn't standard practice for women to attend but that was kind of the higher education for for the young men of Athens. So actually Flo I thought you were going to ask about um, exams uh, before you get to higher education do you have to pass out of school uh, with any sort of formal examination? I was just revising before I asked that question, sir. In the in this kind of Babylonian tradition, um, they did have kind of interrogations at the end of school or um, a later text called the Examination Text A, catchy title, um, basically lists one of these interrogations. <laughs> There's a brilliant zinger from the teacher towards the end where he says to the pupil uh, who's being interrogated, kind of you could think of like a... Um, like a doctoral viva, like having to prove your research at the end of your PhD. Um, he says to the pupil, what have you done? What good came of your sitting here? You're already a ripe man and close to being aged. Like an old ass, you're not teachable anymore. Ouch! 
<laughs> Zing. So yeah. large. So, you know, I said earlier, like, it's clear that these people were learning for a very long time. And this particular student is a, is a well-mature man by this stage. And he's just spent years learning to be a scribe. And his teacher's like, nah, can't teach an old dog new tricks, basically. It was a nice, uh, that idiom still exists in the ancient world as well. I'm on my third degree now, so I can understand hey. the position. <laughs> Now, listen, if your lecturers are saying anything like that to you, you need to go to the head of department immediately. <laughs> That's not OK. <laughs> um, so no exams that I've come across in uh, ancient Rome. But I did think it was interesting, Barney, that the scribes in ancient Mesopotamia were were elite because, you know, while while Roman elites would have had um, like a formal education, scribes tended actually to be slaves. They tended to be bought for their skill. To, to write on behalf of um, of other people in, in elite positions. Oh, so it's a very different kind of um, cultural respect for the role. Definitely. They had respect for the skill, but mm. it, it tended to be one that they, they felt they could outsource, if that makes sense. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So I was wondering... Um, at school, I wasn't particularly a model student. I got good grades and I was a bit of a class clown uh, and I quite often forgot my homework, sorry, or I uh, didn't pay attention in class. So what were the punishments that you might see at ancient schools? There's a fun thing in Sparta about punishment, which is that um, the Spartan boys were taught to steal food and that was kind of part of their training. So they weren't punished for stealing because it was meant to kind of engender this sense of being strong and being able to kind of fight and forage for yourself and, you know, uh, find food in difficult circumstances. But they would be punished if they got caught stealing. So it's a kind of slightly strange morality around punishment in Sparta. You get caught um, you get punished if you're kind of caught in the act, but the actual stealing itself wouldn't uh, warrant a punishment, which I think is interesting. It's like Fagin and the and the boys in uh, Oliver Twist, isn't it? That Charles Dickens novel. You think if you were a stall owner in Sparta, you'd be like, oh, I wonder why this pitch for my stall is so cheap. And then like the school bell rings and you're like, right, I'm not going here. It's right next to the school. I'm never going <laughs> to be able to keep any of my stock. That's such a good point. Very cheap real estate next to Spartan school. <laughs> Can you imagine if you swap Spartan schoolboys with Roman schoolboys? The Roman Roman teachers wouldn't know what hit them. The worst exchange program ever. <laughs> yeah, it would be a Lord of the Flies situation very quickly. I think. Yeah, absolutely. But as we saw from the Hercules myth, sometimes the it's worse to be a teacher, as in if you get stabbed to death with a liar the teaching profession in ancient Rome wasn't very well paid um it was I mean it was fairly well respected but it was more respected weirdly if you were um a slave teaching actually because then you didn't actually have to pay for your own subsistence I think that really goes against the law um against the perception that enslaved people weren't educated people in the ancient world, there was a huge spectrum of of what slaves could do, like like the slave that um, Meg mentioned earlier, Cleon, who could write in three different languages, and yet he was employed as a as a mine worker. You could get slaves who who did do manual labour, who weren't literate, but you could also get slaves who were highly highly skilled and therefore highly valuable. 
It's also, I think, interesting in terms of how we get evidence, because obviously so much of our evidence from the ancient world is kind of fragments or things that have been corrupted. But like with that inscription by Cleon, that probably suggests, even though it's so rare to have a trilingual inscription by an enslaved person, especially, it probably suggests that that situation might be more common than we would imagine. Um, but it's just the nature of the evidence that we have. So we get, you know, inscriptions in all kinds of strange places, which again, yeah, suggests that there were probably more things going on like that and stuff written on papyrus, but obviously that's so much more likely to have been lost. I have a solution to this. Write everything on tablets. Yeah. <laughs> 100% clay, baby. <laughs> I do find it interesting how people wrote in different ways, and obviously it had to be in sustainable ways. We didn't always have access to paper, and in Victorian times, there was also a method by which you would have a, a sort of a frame in which normally a slate would sit, but you would drip wax into it. So you'd have um, wax that you'd scratch letters into. And then when you needed to reuse it, you'd melt the wax again and make it smooth. Well, Romans had wax tablets too, um, but because it's obviously a lot warmer (laughs) in the Mediterranean than here, the wax tended to stay soft. So you'd um, you just you didn't have to melt it. You'd, you'd just fill the, the tablet with with some soft wax. Then you'd write whatever you wanted into it. And if you wanted to rub it out, you just sort of smudged it with your thumb. Uh, and every now and then we get someone who's been writing really, really hard on their wax tablet. And we can read what they accidentally scratched into the wood at the back of the tablet. There's there's actually one example that we've got in the British Museum. It's from Vindolanda on Hadrian's Wall. It's of a birthday party invitation that, that was written from um, a, a woman at uh, a fort near Vindolanda. And it was sent to the wife of the commander of Vindolanda and this woman is inviting her friend to her birthday party so it's great most of it is written by a scribe who sort of does the formal bit the I invite you to my birthday party on this date at this venue and then there's just a couple of lines written in in this woman's own handwriting um saying the ancient equivalent of um looking forward to seeing you there love you babes bye does the birthday party invitation suggest that most women who were the wives of military commanders would have been able to write? Or does the fact that it's so small, do you think that suggests that actually that would be quite unusual? No, I think I think you're right. This is sort of what we were saying earlier with like Fortunata, Trimalchio's wife. It seems that, you know, people and, and these, these women wouldn't necessarily have been very well off. Like th- this wasn't a particularly fancy position um, in, in the Roman military. So, yeah, it, it tells us that fairly ordinary women would have had at least that basic level of literacy. They would have been able to write to their friends if they wanted to. So, guys, what, what have we learned today? I learned that uh, if you want information to survive through history, you should probably do it on a tablet. I learned that um, even in the ancient world, birthday party invitations were a source of great enjoyment. I really enjoyed learning about Linus, who was killed with a liar for being a bit of a rubbish teacher. Um, So be warned, all teachers out there. I like learning about Spartan school and how sometimes it paid to be bad. Okay, well, as we go and get ready for our school exams, uh, let's also get ready for a physical exam, because our next episode is going to be about hospitals. And ambulances are ready to take us away. Did you hear that? Sorry, I forgot to mute. That's perfect. (laughs) 
you for joining us for another episode of Against the Law. If you enjoyed it, hit follow or subscribe so you'll get all our future episodes in your feed. We love hearing from you, so please get in touch with suggestions and feedback on Twitter at Against Law, that's L-O-R-E, or email Against the Law Podcast at gmail.com. Bye for now. Bye.